We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Today is Saturday, November 28th, 2015, and welcome back to The Truth Perspective, everyone. I'm your host, Elon Martin, and with me in the studio today, we have Meg McDonald. Hello. William Barbet. Good afternoon. And Corey Schenk. Hey, everybody. And if all our listeners can just let us know if we're sounding okay, some of our chatters can just shout out and tell us we're sounding good. That would be wonderful. The theme for today's show is seeing the men behind the curtain, which uh, which seems to have been a, a running theme this past week, and in, and and uh, I guess ever since uh, Putin made his big speech at the UN in uh, in late September, early October, uh, it just seems as though more and more information is becoming more and more apparent to. Um, those of us who are not just inside of um, the alternative uh, media uh, stream, but also to uh, mass awareness. Um, but before we get into how exactly that seems to be occurring and where, uh, we had some uh, pretty big, portentous World War Three. Uh, sparking events earlier in the week in the form of uh, the Russian Su-24 bomber plane being shot out of the skies in northern Syria by Turkey's F-16 plane. Uh, So let's just recap for anybody who's been uh, in a cave for the past five days or so, uh, for anyone who hasn't heard this big bit of news, this uh this one event um has sparked an incredible number of uh of other um events and uh and information uh that's been coming out in all quarters about Turkey, the war on terror, um, France's uh new stance um in fighting the war on terror or not. That's up to, to debate I guess a little bit. Uh, but yeah, if we can do a little bit of a recap there, so um, so we know that uh, Russia had this bomber plane, which it had informed uh, the Americans and NATO about, uh, because it had been very transparently telling them, "Look, this is where we are. This is where we'll be. This is what we're doing." And uh, and here, seemingly out of nowhere, or not. Uh, Turkey comes and uh, and destroys this Russian fighter plane uh, that went down. Uh, two or at p- least they said that they did. Well, right now there doesn't seem to be much information to suggest that it, it came from any other um, source, that the aggression came from any other direction. So uh, it, it looks like that was the case. and uh, And it certainly looks like 
and is apparent to most people observing this who aren't brainwashed by um, the Western media that this is a blatant, disgusting, brutal act of aggression against uh, the Russian forces who are in Syria to defeat ISIS and the terrorist head choppers. And, um, and so the question becomes, why did Turkey do this? That's a pretty <clears throat> that's a pretty good question, Elon, because what Turkey has essentially done and everyone in the media has has come out and said this is that uh Turkey's come out on the side of ISIS in this in this attack because it was blatantly uh aggressive against Russia. They took out a a Russian bomber and then immediately after that there was some confusion it seemed like in turkey they weren't quite sure what was going on but then they immediately started uh calling russian politicians uh, emotional and saying that they were uh acting up when uh when russia was just uh when the russians were essentially just um angered by the the death of their pilot um and what so what turkey did was they came out and in front of the whole world they came out on the side of ISIS and proved to the world that they're a state sponsor of terrorism and a major one. And this essentially ruins Turkey's attempts to join the EU. It adds a lot of pressure onto Turkey itself economically due to Russians' uh, sanctions against their economy and the postponing of different projects. And if Russia had responded aggressively, then Turkey would have been within their rights to close the Bosphorus uh, Straits there, which could have severely uh, hampered Russia's uh, intervention in Syria. So the question is, uh, who benefits from that? You know, Turkey obviously doesn't benefit. President Erdogan doesn't benefit because it looks like his career is very, it has been damaged just horrendously. And Turkey's economy doesn't benefit. So the question remains. Well, so who benefits? Uh, in the vast scheme of things, when you look at how destructive a picture it is, uh, no one really benefits. Um, but there's another element involved here, and that is uh, the fact that Turkey is a NATO country, a NATO member. Um, and as we know, NATO, along with the U.S. and its uh, and the countries that it's that are under its vassalage, have been putting pressure on Russia in any and every way that it can. Um, so on one, on one level, whether this was Turkey acting independently, uh, its claim was that its, uh, its sovereignty, its, its borders were being um, crossed over and, and impinged upon by the Russian plane for 17 seconds. Um, you know, whatever the truth of that is, uh, you know, it's it's a BS reason for shooting a Russian plane out of the sky, and uh, and seems to be very clearly an act designed to provoke Russia into greater conflict with a NATO country, Turkey, um, which would then give the excuse for Turkey to call on its NATO allies ostensibly and bring in. Uh, bring in the big guns because Russia is starting a conflict. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting that this has happened before where Russia was in Turkish airspace by accident. And this happened, what, about a month or two ago? And everything was settled just fine. You know, there was no shooting each other's jets or anything like that. Um, and this time, there's no proof that Russia was in Turkey at all. But yet they get shot down for this, which is quite unprecedented. And what's the first thing Erdogan do? He runs to NATO, doesn't even contact Russia or give any kind of apology right off the bat. And, and I think that's very telling of the whole situation. Uh, he doesn't communicate with Russia. He comes out with, with statements to the effect of, uh, we were in our rights to, to do this because of our sovereignty. Um, by the way, NATO, you know, can you please give me cover? Uh, you know, he's running scared. Um, and, and really, the truth is that he was the aggressor. Uh, but the other the other thing that uh, is suggested by Joe Quinn's article earlier in the week, uh, one of his articles, he, he's been uh, on a roll on SOT this week, as well as Harrison Kelly and uh, Juliana Birnbaum. Um, he, you know, he was suggesting that, uh, you know, NATO has a base in Turkey. Um, and one of its... Uh, Chiefs of Staff was known to have visited Ankara, the capital of Turkey, if, if I'm correct. It's either Ankara or Istanbul. But in any case, uh, so so you have to wonder if there is some kind of um, some kind of independently acting force within Turkey uh, on the part of the U.S. that act, that had control over the planes, who planned and executed and and actually. Um, Perform this act of aggression towards the Russian plane, um, because Erdogan running to the U.S. and to NATO uh, that very same day suggests almost a, an element of uh, of his being surprised by the whole thing or taken off guard. Um, so there is that bit of speculation which which may be worth examining. And this isn't to say that the guy is innocent of anything. Uh, and that's another part of what we'll be discussing today, because, um, you know, along with this shooting down a plane uh, is all of this other information just it oozing out from every corner about yeah. about Turkey. Yeah, Russia was really quick to, to let it be known to the world that they were stabbed in the back by Turkey and now, and that also that Turkey was, very deep into uh, sponsoring ISIS and helping them smuggle oil and helping them earn $1.5 million per day, if that's a, that's a rough estimate. Um, and, yeah, I think that, that you're you're right in saying that there is definitely another element involved in this and and that this, this attack has served as the catalyst to reveal a lot of dirty dealings that have been going on in Turkey for quite some time. Um, this is back you know, decades. Turkey is kind of the devil's playground for a lot of the more you know pathological elements in NATO. They used it to um, to bolster different terrorist elements and to train different terrorist elements. So undoubtedly, even though you know Erdogan may not have 
been involved, or Turkey, the official government, wasn't involved in downing this aircraft. If they weren't involved, they're still obviously very guilty of being complicit in sponsoring ISIS and creating this situation that Russia's had to intervene in. Uh, I think we may have a call, so we're going to take that and and uh, say hello to our caller. Hello, caller, are you there? Hi, just listening. Okay, enjoy the show. Uh, what you just said, Corey, reminds me quite a bit of um, an article that uh, Sat just carried, which was originally from uh, Huffington Post. Um, can, can we just give a brief description of Huffington Post to our listeners in case they're not uh, kind of familiar with it? Uh, I, w- I would just describe Huffington Post. It, it's this um, extremely popular uh, website. Uh, in the U.S. Uh, by Ariana Huffington, who is this kind of socialite with progressive leanings, so-called. Um, and uh, and so um, Huffington Post, um, by most standards, is kind of like the uh, quote-unquote democratic voice of the U.S. Uh, it almost never goes far enough in revealing uh, what's going on in the world. Um, and it, it's even more annoying to me in some ways than like a Fox News or, or a CNN where I can just expect the, the blatant lies to be per, you know, perpetrated um, because that's just you know, what they do so well. Um, but Huffington, Huffington Post has pretensions to being uh, kind of open and... and um, you know, covering social events a little more, uh, kind of with a with a heart. At least that's that's the, you know, it's kind of the, it's kind of like a, kind of like the New York Times in a way. I don't know. Um, but in any case, it came out with a an article uh, a few days ago uh, called "Columbia University Research Paper: Is Turkey Collaborating with?" the Islamic State. And uh, and this came out, gosh, I guess just a day or two before the, the bombing, um, the destruction of the Russian plane. And what this article does is it looks at news media from around the world, uh, some of it from RT and, and Sputnik and places where you'd expect to see coverage of this sort of thing, but also a, a load of other outlets around the world that are more mainstream. And um, and the point of the study was to, um, was to look at all of this information that's available to us from mostly the mainstream uh, to suggest what we already kind of know, which is that Turkey is a hotbed and a, uh, a profiter and an instigator and a supplier of terrorism in Syria, its southern neighbor. And um, and so it collected all of these uh, snippets of articles. Um, and the themes were Turkey provides military equipment to ISIS. Turkey provided transport and logistical assistance to ISIS fighters. Turkey provided training to ISIS fighters. Turkey offers medical care to ISIS fighters. 
Turkey supports ISIS financially through purchase of oil. Turkey assists ISIS recruitment. Turkish forces are fighting alongside ISIS. Turkey helped ISIS in battle for Kobani. Turkey and ISIS share a worldview and proceeds point by point to uh, document how all of these things are correct and true, um, collecting all of these pieces from, from mainstream sources. And so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this from Huffington Post. You know, Turkey's a huge ally of the U.S. It's a NATO member. And, uh, you know, you have to wonder, you know, is, is, the, is the veil being lifted here for folks? Also, about the same time, when Putin revealed the virtual pipeline of trucks of oil that stretched over the horizon and clearly it's straight for Turkey. So it's kind of coincidental that these two things come out about the same time. Yeah. And uh, as well as the fact that uh, Orogan's son is a kind of major component in trafficking of the oil um, in, in making money off of it for Turkey, for his dad, who more and more seems to me to be this kind of, um, you know, pseudo-Islamist mafioso, kingpin guy, you know. Uh, I mean, he, he had signed all of these kind of um, agreement deals with Assad in, in 2010, uh, he had pretty good relations with Russia, and he stabs everyone in the back. Uh, yeah, he really set himself up for that one. Like you said in that headline, with uh, that Turkey and Islamic State share a common ideology. That wasn't always the case whatsoever, because for you know, for decades Turkey's constitution has maintained that they're a secular country. They're ultra secular. Of course, back in the day, uh, that meant the that the you know gladio operatives would parade around under the the banner of being ultra nationalists, and they would commit their terrorist acts and their drug running and whatnot under that banner. But then when Erdogan came into power in the 90s, that was when you saw the whole ultra nationalist thing just get kicked to the wayside, and everyone was more interested in using Islamic fundamentalists because look how successful they were in the Balkans and look how successful they were in. Uh, the the whole bear trap in Afghanistan with the Soviet Union, and so pretty soon you saw the ultranationalists get expired, quote unquote, and uh, there was a car crash in Turkey in '96, which revealed the ties between these fascists and the heads of state, and so there was a huge crisis, and then not too long after that, in 2000, in the early 2000s, Erdogan uh, uh, comes into power, and he's always been, like you said. Uh, kind of a mafiosa Islamic kingpin, and that looked like his whole career was heading in that direction, and he just caught the sails, and it looked like he sailed right in. And uh, starting in 2003, really started to take out the secular government, uh, the secular infrastructure, and just has kept steadily pushing with the help of CIA assets, with the help of a lot of shady people in Turkey to turn it into an Islamic state and to uh, to turn it more into, you know, this gladio B that we see of all the terrorists being unleashed on populations and 
you know, instilling fear. And that's what he wanted. You know, he wanted to have power, and obviously he was willing to use or to be used in Syria and around the globe to do that. But then now, uh, like he said, just right after this this jet was shot down, you know, it looks like he had, all of this work that he had done, all of this work that his party had done to make this a possibility for the U.S. or for whoever is interested in seeing Turkey become an Islamic state. Um, now it looks like he's on the way out. It looks like he himself has been expired because he got a little bit too rowdy, a little bit too power hungry. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah, and also about the uh, taking care of ISIS casualties in a hospital. Mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, it's Erdogan's sister who actually runs that hospital. All in the family. It's a family business. <laughs> We're a fan. What is that speech in uh, There Will Be Blood with Daniel Day-Lewis? We're a family business. Um, yeah. So... Uh, there are a lot of fast-breaking developments about this story. Um, one of the biggest ones, of course, was Hollande's uh, visit uh, first to the United States to meet with Obama, uh, and then following that to meet with Putin to discuss um, his new alliance with uh, Putin's coalition um, and to, uh, to actually work together in destroying ISIS in Syria. And um a few a few very interesting things were said there. Um one thing that that was especially interesting uh, which is pointed out in in one of the recent sot focuses is uh Hollande's kind of assertion that you know, you know of course Putin must uh, not Putin but uh, Assad must go. Um so we're going to work with Russia but uh but Assad must go. And I think the, the accurate uh, comment that was made about that statement um, is that Hollande kind of has to say this, you know, to, to maintain the veneer of being aligned still with the U.S., while just the same um, asserting its right to defend itself after the attacks of Paris a couple of weeks ago. And plus he is calling for a single coalition to fight against ISIS. Uh, Hollande is calling for this. And uh, Putin, of course, fully agrees and is ready and willing to to have such a thing. But uh, you don't hear anything from the U.S., which you know should be a, a major partner in, involved. Yeah, I think we're I think we may have a caller here. Let's see if we do. Hello, caller. Hello, are you there? Steven. Yes, Hi, Stephen. How are you? Hello. Yes, uh, I'd, I'd like to venture a, a couple of thoughts on this situation, and it's it's extremely confusing. But um, so let's say that um, possibility that there was a uh, a fighter fighter pilots that are Turkish, they're full of bravado, um, and they did this on their own outside of the uh, purview of the uh Turkish state. Okay, that's one possibility. I, I don't I don't find that very convincing. Um then the next possibility is that Erdogan, his government, um they did this outside of the purview of US NATO. 
I really don't find that very convincing either. And this gets very confusing. And um, But those two possibilities I just ventured actually are, are possibilities. So then you go, let's say that Erdogan, Turkish government, they did this with full knowledge. It was pre-planned um, within some strategy of U.S. and NATO. Now, I find it far-fetched as when they're when they're looking at this, when they're thinking this through. Okay, so what's going to be uh, Russia and Putin's response to it? Uh, yeah, well, we're just going to like catch them flat-footed. They're going to be angry, and they're going to end up going in and bombing maybe you know the uh, some military targets within Turkey that would uh, put into play uh, that 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 fifth. Um, proposition within NATO that Turkey's being attacked. Now, I think they're smart enough to know that that Russia and Putin would not do that. Um, well, let me Russia interrupt you Putin. there, Stephen. Go ahead, Stephen. Let me in, let me interrupt you there. Uh, they may not be smart enough. Uh, you know, before the show, uh, we we were discussing the dynamics of the situation a little bit. Corey, uh, can you recall what you said about the red button? Well, yeah, I when I was uh, first uh, read this story, I remember thinking that it just seems to me like like everyone with a red button in NATO, in Washington, wherever, uh they're just hitting it like crazy. They don't know what they don't know what to do, but they're going to try and get Russia to react in whatever way possible so that they can uh regain their momentum, which they've been losing drastically. So yeah, it just seems like maybe they aren't smart enough. Maybe they're so uh, blinded by hubris. I mean, they're just uh, they're just like Erdogan. They think that you know whatever they do, they're they're not going to be the ones uh, to fall down uh, at the end. Yeah, and looking at a yeah. psychopath psychopathic point of view, um, they're full of wishful thinking and they have their own way of thinking. But when it comes to normal human beings, they don't know how they're going to react. And so they all they can do is guess and play games, and here they're, you know, they're expecting a res- one type of response, but then get a totally different one, and then they, they're befuddled. Yeah, does that make I sense just, on any level? It 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 could be it could be because one thing that I recognize just from the, just looking at this from a larger context in with momentum and dynamics. Um, it definitely seems to me that the U.S. Um, and their their hegemonic uh, aspirations in their doctrine, of, uh, you know, tamping down and destroying any any power that that threatens to rise up that would challenge the hegemony of the United States. Um, I see that that's a that's a losing proposition that they can't maintain. And when it comes to the Middle East. If you just look at the um if you just look at the dynamics and the narratives that are put forward by the United States, um, let's say well it got so convoluted with the United States, they destroyed um Iraq, caused all kinds of instability, they're playing one group against another there, Sunni versus Shiite, Iran Iran gets involved, um the United States just sees that it cannot just put a a puppet government in power there that would would last um, over the long term, and then they do Libya, 
all kinds of instability, no no stabilization there. Then they move on to Syria. It just becomes a, just a huge um, kind of like com- confabulation where there's no dominant narrative that the United States can stand behind that would last over the long term. And then it comes to uh, Russia getting involved. And their thesis is this, international law and the viability and the sovereignty of states is the fundamental principle. We are there. We're going to defend that narrative. And um, in my opinion, that's a that's a, a stronger proposition for action and philosophy and narrative, and that trumps what the United States has been doing. Um, they're so confused in what they've sown, and they. So they you're saying, up Stephen, the, you're saying that uh, you're saying that that's that's been Russia's. Uh, kind of uh, yeah. forward action. Uh, R- Russia has the most coherent narrative and and, and um, justification for action in the defense of sovereignty and international law and also the defense of a, uh, a uh, non-sectarian um, multi, multi, uh, multi-ethnic, um, multi-religious uh, form of governance as far as the nation state goes within that region, it seems it, it falls in line with being more progressive. It falls in line with being more humanitarian, more just, more in line with Western uh, liberal values than any of the Qatar, Saudi, and then you have with uh, Turkey, you have this kind of neo Ottoman aspirations uh, on the part of Erdogan that seems me- uh, magno. Uh, maniacal, and it, and um, so so what's happening now? What here's what my point is: this could have been um, the United States and Obama letting this play out, knowing full well that the ramifications of this would be first off Russia becoming more coherent in its its reason for being inside of Syria and that they can deploy the, uh, the 400 series of, uh, of, um, you know, protection within Syria's borders. They become mm-hmm. Russia, Russia uses this to become stronger in its position, defending state sovereignty within Syria because, um, <clears throat> Obama recognizes that being in bed with, uh, Erdogan, given all of the evidence of its helping uh, Islamic State, um, al-Nusra, all these various uh, all these various fanatic players that are supported by Qatar and Saudi Arabia, that the United States recognizes that this is not a narrative that it can win. So they let Erdogan become the fall guy knowing that these actions by Erdogan are just going to uh it's going to make make um um Turkey's position within NATO vis-a-vis this conflict with Syria much more precarious it's going to strengthen Russia because at this point the United States specifically the Obama faction which is um within the United States government there's different factions. Obama would rather not become more embroiled in this because Obama recognizes that, that the United States doesn't have a sufficient 
um, strong narrative to play ball with with how all of this plays out in the future. So what I'm venturing is this. They, they totally understood that Erdogan and Turkey will be put in the worst situation vis-a-vis NATO, vis-a-vis this conflict, vis-a-vis with respect to how the majority of the world sees what it's doing there. Um, this allows the United States to even back off further and, and, and accept it as a fait accompli that Russia and the state of Syria, the viability of the state within the current government, is going to continue on. And then it's less likely that Syria will be split up. It's less likely that Islamic State will be accepted as a legitimate player in any settlement. I'm just I'm just throwing that out there. Now I could be totally wrong, but um, I just think it's I just I just can't conceive how the United States intelligence wouldn't be thinking this through because if they think that Putin and Russia would have just done something um, out of anger that wasn't thought through, that would put Russia and its goals and Syria government and its goals. If, it, if anything that would have happened would have put Russia and Syria in a worse position just because of operating out of blind anger in reaction without thinking it through, I think that I think that um, I find it I, I just don't find that convincing that they wouldn't have understood that Putin wouldn't would, that that Putin wouldn't just think this through, be very calm in how he reacts to it and to their long-term goals and advantage so you know i might be wrong but um anyway i just wanted to throw that out there and i'll just enjoy listening to the rest of y'all's show bye-bye thanks for the call Stephen. interesting stuff to all right david all right bye-bye yeah well i see where the steven's base premise is that it's kind of unbelievable to imagine that you know the leaders uh or Sikh leaders, Sikh government, whatever these individuals that that are coming up with these policies and they're making decisions that they are not rational, or that they could be irrational and very short-sighted. Um, and I know that you know, a lot of us do have a. It's it's not easy to put yourself shoes of someone who's willing to destroy an entire country um, just for your short-term goals. You know, and I can see where that confusion uh, would come in. However, I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with the, the premise that you know, that they're trying to strengthen Syria, strengthen Russia. Though I do agree that it looks like they're trying to throw Turkey to the wolves. And after Putin came and said, "I know who's financing ISIS," we have four countries. Mm-hmm. Um, we have information documents that point to four different countries. Some of them G20 members are financing ISIS. I I could see that you know maybe some people are getting a little uh, itchy and they're looking for a fall guy. In Turkey, you know, it's right there and it's very obvious. Like all of deadlines, it's all public knowledge. But also, you know, it's you know NATO's been well aware of this for some time. They've had their fingers in it for a long time. So it does look like you know this information is put mainstream. I can see. Uh, I can see that they are using it to make Turkey a fall guy. I would see evidence for that. Uh, the flip side of that is that NATO came out this week after its uh, its little uh, huddle with uh, Erdogan to uh, to be in support. Uh, at least that's what uh, Stoltenberg, the 
NATO spokesperson um, kind of came out with, uh, you know, asserting Turkey's right to defend its sovereign borders and such. And um, uh, but but there's speculation that even within NATO, uh, there was um, there was some upset about Erdogan's Erdogan's actions. Um, so who knows? Maybe maybe there is some element of uh, of of throwing Turkey to the wolves. Um, but uh, I don't know how 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 do you how do you successfully separate all of Turkey's actions uh, from the U.S.'s? In the past few years, it doesn't seem like it can't. It seems more like a Turkey is a smokescreen in a way. So that's the thing. If if the U.S. or was the one who had to go ahead and do this, and we'll cover for you, if that's what happened. Mm-hmm. It makes sense for Turkey to be the fall guy for it. Mm-hmm. Well, I imagine that you know as things get uglier and uglier out there, that there are different. I mean, there's got to be a list going on among the ranks there in NATO that they're I mean because situations are getting very ugly and they're seeing just how um, nasty and brutal these ruling established elites whether in Germany Greece or whether it's um, uh, the things that have been going on in Syria and they know that a lot of could come home to roost with a terrorist uh, terrorist attacks I imagine that there's a lot of splitting that goes on and some fighting um, is because what well, you know these people is just, I mean, it's just self-interest. You know, it's as long as I my, you know, my huge paycheck at the end of the day and I'm living in this huge palace and I have control and power. But as soon as those promises start to evaporate, then it, I imagine that things start to um, darker. <laughs> the, the wolves turn on each yeah, other. the wolves maybe start fighting for the the ever. Uh, diminishing piece of pie. Yeah, and it's also interesting is if uh, you remember last year with G20 Australian summit, uh, Putin had to leave early, uh, claimed that he wasn't feeling well or tired, needed to leave, and he wasn't really a very popular person at that time, being demonized or his incursions or upset in Ukraine. <laughs> That all turned around when uh, they had their summit there in Ankara, Turkey. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, he was the go-to guy. Everyone had to have their pictures or be known or wanted to be seen with Putin. Um, so that's making mainstream you find it a lot harder to paint Putin as the uh, as evil anymore. And then you get to see that with Iran trying to get a coalition going with Russia. And now you see UK sending a warship to help uh, the uh, France's aircraft carrier to give it cover and protection. And even Germany is considering sending just to do reconnaissance work there as well. Uh, this is all outside of NATO and it's probably uh, not something the U.S. really wants to see. Yeah, I think that it doesn't seem like the U.S. necessarily anticipated how close Iran and, and Russia would be following with this, uh, these terror attacks that took place in France. And like you had said earlier, it seems like Hollande um, is making lip service to you know, the U.S.'s geopolitical goals in the region and is you know, 
I think the world is, sees where you know the the future is. At least a lot of people probably see where at least they their their bread buttered, and the U.S. is just collapsing in on itself with all the lies. With it just to make it doesn't make any sense, and it's frankly repulsive. So I can see why these um, you know some uh, why there's such a kind of a change in the way the the world is going. We're we're getting the messages now that uh, our sound is a little choppy. Um, so some of the corrections that we tried to uh, do this week um, are, are still kind of limited in their effect. So I apologize for that, folks. Um, I think what we may try and do is is fiddle with the connection here for a minute. Um, and if you bear with us, if you can hear me. Um, there were other things that uh, came out of all of this, which kind of showed yet again uh, Putin's resolve, uh, his restraint, uh, his wisdom in uh, in handling the whole affair. I mean, he was rightfully, righteously pissed off, Turkey. I mean, not a few days earlier, he was in Ankara with you know, taking pictures with Erdogan, and this happens. Um, but uh, rather than physically lash out inside of Turkey and uh, and escalate things, um, it it looks as though Russia is putting the screws to Turkey economically. And among the things that they're doing uh, is they're um, they're kind of uh, affecting the amount of industrial consumer goods that are being brought to Turkey. Uh, which could be two million dollar uh, decline in in Turkey's uh, revenue. Uh, they are closing all projects that were connected with Turkey, including construction of nuclear power plants, um, and will ban activities of Turkish companies inside of Russia. Um, Russia is now beginning to support the Kurdish political forces. The Kurds are the uh, the political uh, nemesis of the Erdogan government. Um, so they're they're beginning to support them uh, militar- militarily, I believe. Um, and um, and like we were saying earlier, one of the biggest things is the exposure of Erdogan uh, in the world, uh, like that Huffington Post article um, about his material, financial, logistic. Uh, um, military support of ISIS. All of this is coming out to the fore. And at the same time uh, that Russia is tightening the screws, uh, at the press conference following Alon's and Putin's meeting, Putin sort of gave Erdogan and Turkey an out when he said, I understand that this could have been corruption that occurred, but if this is corruption, then you need to do something about it, and you need to clean it up. And so, I mean, I think Putin is handling this extremely well and diplomatically, especially considering the fact that as the president, his, one of his troops has been murdered and killed mm-hmm. by another country. And you cannot just let that go without any sort of response. I mean, you know, how many people are looking up to you and saying, you know, what are you going to do about this? But obviously... They are doing everything they can within reason um, to maintain the, their operations there in Syria without 
um, causing too much of a disruption and um, and also using it to their advantage by now deploying those um, at, uh, I can't remember the 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 surface to air missile defense systems. So it's really it's turned out once more it's turned out to uh, uh, Russia is turning it to their advantage this tragedy to their advantage. And uh, on the heels of of what happened last Tuesday, um, in one of Putin's speeches, uh, William, uh, you had a little bit about the uh, incredible um, amounts of oil uh, that were that was being siphoned off from Syria. Yeah, I mean, he he showed the video of them actually bombing these trucks and showing the how long the line was. It was just unbelievably long. You couldn't see it from end to end. It was going over the horizon. And what I believe Russia destroyed, about a 1,000 trucks. And then shortly after, you hear the U.S. did their little token thing of bombing them, bombing them, and then they used Russian footage to claim as their own as if they were doing so. That was a PBS show, I believe. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's a joke. Man. It is. Yeah. Meg's chuckling here in the studio, but it, it's a freaking joke. Uh, look, you know, look, we're doing it. You know, we're we're smart enough, and and they're showing our power and getting them where they live in uh, in Syria. Uh, look, we're doing it too. We weren't arming and funding them. Why would you think that? That's not right. And training them. We weren't training them. <laughs> I mean, it's essentially this huge mercenary army that that Russia is destroying, and it's unbelievable uh, how they've they've grown like an infection that hasn't been touched with a, with any sort of antibiotic or anything. It's just crazy how big this operation is and how much gun happens underneath the surface. I'm sure that just what we hear is just like an iceberg, you know, that we can see above the the water. The deep underneath the waters, it's just this huge criminal operation that just takes in, and I can't. I think it was around. It was around maybe one to three billion dollars a year just in drug trafficking, and then you have the oil, and then all the money that they got off of uh, kidnapping. They were they were so well off that they stopped their kidnapping wing. You know, they had a kidnapping operation that they that they discontinued because of all of the money that they've been getting from NATO just in the assistance to to do all of these things. And I remember reading on SOT not too long ago about three men who were arrested for a criminal operation that involved some illegal gambling. You know, but here these you know these guys pale in comparison to the real criminal outfits that are sent that are supposed to be leading our our um, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and it's just insane. And Putin is holding up his promise. I mean, he did say he he knew where the financing was coming from. He didn't name the countries, but mm-hmm. he 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 clearly laid it out. Said this is the way to stop ISIS is to is to cut off the funding, and he's making it. Uh, Plain to see where that funding is coming from. <laughs> At least one country. There's 39 more. Well, there was um, another story that that's just come out this week. Uh, in Turkey, you have a couple of uh, journalists who had um, last May uh, exposed uh, in their articles a um, a weapons smuggling uh, operation. Uh, so basically. You know, you had uh, the Erdogan military uh, smuggling arms to 
the terrorists, ISIS. And, um, and, and these journalists uh, in an opposition newspaper in Turkey put out the story. So uh, it seems that uh, Erdogan waited until he had uh, a new cabinet uh, before he um, brought these guys under charges and personally sued them, too, um, you know, as if it's a, a personal attack. I mean, it, uh, you know, these guys are these guys are either telling lies um, or they're telling the truth mm -hmm. about it. Uh, but of course, he, he feels very threatened by it, as he should. Um, one of the stories was um, something we discussed a little earlier. Uh, Bilal, by the way, is the name of Erdogan's son, who is uh, complicit in ISIS oil uh, transit. Um, but there there have been uh, protests surrounding the arrests of these two journalists. Uh, they were accused of political or military spying by reporting classified information, which is reminiscent of, um, you know, what, what do they say here in the U.S.? Uh, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a security. Um, we've only read this a, a thousand times, a million times. Uh, it'll come to us. We'll be talking about something else. Threat to national security. Yes, a threat to national security. Right, right. You can't talk about this because it's it's threatening our national security. Uh, and and they also accused this guy of deliberately these two journalists of deliberately aiding a terrorist organization, which is exactly <laughs> what these two guys are exposing in the Erdogan government. So, um, and he even calls them traitors. Yeah, yeah. So you know, if you're not with us, you're against us. Uh, if you're not with the Erdogan crime family, uh, then you know you're a traitor to Turkey. Well, wasn't it a United States journalist that was was she detained or uh, found dead in Turkey who was exposing some of the um, the connection to ISIS? Yes. Yeah, and you didn't hear a peep. But nobody in the U.S. was too upset about that. No. No, she was. Uh, I, think she, I want to say she was Iranian, and uh, okay. and exposed a lot of this information, but was murdered. And uh, this was about a year ago, I want to say. Um, so we have that story coming out from within Turkey. Um, so we have the Huffington Post article. We have, we have, uh, we have these two journalists. Who who seem pretty uh, pretty together, um, pretty well prepared with statements countering uh, the accusations. Um, one th one of their statements: um, freedom of the press has been steadily eroding in Turkey under Mr. Erdogan. Police have closed opposition television stations. Prosecutors have accused top journalists of writing tweets or columns insulting the president. And reporters have been beaten by mobs. The government is one of the world's leading censors of Twitter, which is used widely in Turkey to criticize the government. So I don't, I don't think actually that was a statement by one of the journalists, but about the story itself. And um, it's interesting, you know, Twitter, social media, is the enemy, mm. um, and is. I think precisely one of the reasons why more and more information is being 
disseminated um, successfully in the world and, and why we're getting more stories in places like Huffington Post. Yeah, you said uh, this. He, following the elections, Erdogan felt like he had the power to really clamp down on these journalists. And I think that we started to see after these elections kind of the culmination of his career, which is, like we said, it was a major push um, from the from his early days as a politician. He was kicked out. He, you know, he was. Um, he was kicked out of politics for a while because of reading of an Islamist poem, which was you know against the the rules. You, it's a secular society, secular government. You can't be an is Islamic uh, fundamentalist <clears throat> or whatever sort of uh, charges related against him. But um, over the years, you know, he's just kept pushing, and he worked with CIA assets, and he eventually split with them um, just uh, just recently. Uh, for whatever reason, what, if he wanted more power, uh, he thought that he could uh, he could fool them all and he would just remain in power. But after the, I believe it's the November 3rd elections, which we just saw, he had a ton of, he felt like he had a ton of uh, political support to go ahead and really create this sort of, a, um, this Islamic foundation for society. And you really saw him starting to crack down on protests and dissidents, and it just looked like he had just enough rope to hang himself with. And that's what we've seen is now he's now all of his dirty laundry is starting to come out, mm-hmm. and and he's got a lot of it because he's a thug. Um, one of our chatters just mentioned Lavrov mentioned knowing about uh, the ISIS oil going to Turkey but that they considered it a Turkish internal matter, so didn't mention it until the plane was down. And uh, I think that's true. And I also think that, you know, just like you said a moment ago, Corey, about giving giving them enough rope, it's like uh, it just speaks to the incredible amount of restraint on the part of Russia. Russia could have, Russia could have said something like that a month ago or several months ago. They could have, you know they have all of this information. They have the intelligence, um, but they don't want to antagonize anybody. They just want to see Syria back on track. They just want to see the problems addressed constructively. Um, and of course, now that you know Erdogan's put his foot in it in a major way, uh, you know, short of short of going into Turkey and, and rubbing out some military bases. Russia is doing everything that it can do to to give the message to Turkey, you screwed up bad, mm-hmm. and we are pissed. And now Erdogan is is quaking in his uh, in his thousand dollar shoes, and is calling what what is he calling for a meeting with Putin next week? Yes. <laughs> yeah, Monday they have that climate summit in Paris, and he's hoping to have some time to talk with Putin and hope, hopefully smooth things over. Because um, one thing uh, Putin um, approved of today was uh, imposing sanctions on some of the imported foods and also on some Turkish organizations uh, that are there in Russia. So also Russia supplies about 60% of Turkey's natural gas. And so it's going to be know, a cold winter. <laughs> So of course Erdogan's got to be a little bit worried that you know, he's 
Erdogan's funny. I mean, first he's belligerent, then he's uh, passive, then he's belligerent again, he's passive again. I mean, just back and forth, back and forth. You really have a time getting to read on this guy. Well, th- this is the read. Uh, the guy is under. Uh, the guy is realizing he just made a an almost fatal error, right? But mm-hmm. it's probably under pressure, not only from uh, the U.S. to to continue, but but by his own hubris, his own uh, psychopathic ambition to to assume parts of Syria and control. Yeah, and I to think build his empire. His hubris leads him to believe that he's a big dog in a game, and he's just a little chihuahua. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. he made that decision based on his hubris, and he realizes maybe that there's much bigger dogs who are a lot smarter than he is, um, and he's backpedaling. Yeah, he's not even in, really in that much of control of his country, doesn't appear to be. I mean, today... Turkey started shelling some Syrian army positions within Syria with mortar bombs. I mean, come on. <laughs> After what's been going down, are you still doing this kind of crap? I, I hadn't read about that, William. Was that the Syrian army? Yeah, those fresh. Assad's forces? Yeah, fresh this morning. Yeah, the Syrian army. Oh, my God. It's like, what? <laughs> Stupidity. Wow. They probably still think they're going to get their, their say, though, too. Okay, so maybe then this meeting that Erdogan wants to have with Putin next week is is like, um, you know, you can liken it to uh, the U.S. sending Kerry to speak with Lavrov about something, where he just kind of makes all of these statements and motions for being diplomatic, but it, it, at the end of the day, it's completely meaningless. Yeah, R- Russia will just play cool, mm-hmm. like they always do. There was uh, another story that started this week. Uh, the man behind the curtain, Israeli colonel, captured among ISIL terrorist forces in Iraq, which is kind of interesting. Well, that, one of the things that struck me was that um, Turkey is not the only one who's benefiting from ISIS having so much power, control, and weapons, and training. Exactly. Yeah. So how how does uh, how does Israel <clears throat> stand to benefit by participating and and supporting ISIS and that's one of the what that's one of the questions that uh F William Ingdahl gets into with this article um but first the the news it was originally covered I think by a far new agent news agency and I'll just read a little bit from Ingdahl's article um in late October an Iranian news agency quoting a senior Iraqi intelligence officer reported the capture of an Israeli army colonel named Yusi Olen Shahak, reportedly related to the ISIS Golani Battalion operating in Iraq in the Salahuddin Front. In a statement to Iran's semi-official Fars News Agency, a commander of the Iraqi army stated, quote, The security and popular forces have held captive an Israeli colonel. He added that the IDF colonel, quote, had participated in the Takfiri ISIL group's terrorist operations, end quote. He said the colonel was arrested together with a number of ISIL or IS terrorists, giving the details, quote, the Israeli colonel's name is Yusi Olen Shahak and is ranked colonel in Golani Brigade. 
with the security and military code of and the numbers given. And uh, and further from that particular FARS news news agency article, um, stated that um, they were trying to understand. You know, these Iraqi forces were trying to understand um, and interrogating <clears throat> this colonel why he was fighting with ISIL. Maybe they were, you know, the less kind of astute uh, or, you know, just less knowledgeable of how things are really working in the Middle East, you know. Um, but what they said was that uh, this guy had made some shocking confessions um, and, uh, and, and basically, you know, how he is a part of this effort on the part of Netanyahu's government to destabilize Iraq, uh, which fits in perfectly with what we've discussed on the show uh, in previous episodes. Um, you know, the, uh, the Oded Yonan plan for a greater uh, Israel in the Middle East. Um, so <laughs> it, it fits. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely fits in with, the, with the, what Israel wants in the region, which is more territory on the map and less of a what they called it existential threat from you know Islamic countries that would possibly object to the treatment of Palestinians or who would be forced to do something by their population. Um, you know, it's that uh, by way of deception we uh, we will wage war. I think something along those lines of the Saudi Israeli intelligence. Uh, by, by way of deception, we will wage war. Something along those lines. Yeah, they. Uh, so you find an Israeli colonel fighting with ISIS in Iraq, and not fighting ISIS, but fighting with ISIS. And you know that he didn't just get lost on his way to the grocery store. This guy was. Uh, he's part of the of a large movement, which again is something we don't see except for when it pops up like this on the on the on the radar. And but it can be predicted based on plans that are very public that Israel has you know started in the 1980s um, about the the plans for greater Israel and then plans that neoconservatives built upon in the 90s to uh, remove Saddam, uh, Saddam Hussein from power and watch Iraq just crumble as and they definitely helped it along obviously by creating these terrorist groups. Libya too. Right. They have the same thing happened and lived to happen in Syria. Um, Israel is, you know, Iran's their biggest enemy. And they don't want Iraq to be together and start collaborating more and be part of Iran. So they've got to do everything they can to keep Iraq in, in shambles so that it can't gather enough to join in with Iran. Right. And that's. Israel's whole uh, public relations campaign is that they're the sole Western-style uh, government of democracy and values there in the Middle East, surrounded by terrorists. And, you know, this just puts the lie to that. But, I mean, that kind of goes back to why they see all of these, uh, every neighbor of theirs as an existential threat. You know, they've, um, they're very much planted there with a vision for making them all threats by through this kind of behavior. <laughs> and, you know, this isn't the first time it's happened. Uh, in 2006, um, Sot covered a story 
British government's agent provocateurs exposed in Basra, Iraq. And um, if you remember, there were these two uh, these two individuals who were wreaking all kinds of havoc, violent havoc, uh, in in Basra and other places. They were blowing up cars. They were spraying people with bullets. Um, actually, actually, I don't think it was these guys. I think it was um, um, I, what is that? Not the 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 uh, they're not called um, XE or something. Oh, Blackwater. 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 Thank you. Uh, but but in any case, these two guys uh, who were dressed up in in Arab garb were um, eventually detained by. Iraqi police and military forces, and uh, you know they got their clothes off, and lo and behold, these are two British dudes who were who were uh, basically acting like terrorists, and um, and so they were. I mean, it was a big deal. They were captured in jail, in prison rather. And, uh, and police forces went out to the streets with bullhorns and were trying to resist uh, British military forces who were trying to get these guys out because it revealed their hand. These guys were terrorizing Iraqis just to foment more division among Iraqis between the Sunni and the Shia. Right, and if you keep pulling that thread, then eventually the whole war on terror is just uh, stands there naked because what is... What is this war on terror? If it, the, all of the people waging it are creating the terror, they um, it's we have a, a whole institution. You can go to college for terrorism studies. You can go join the the Homeland Security. You can you can uh, specialize in this and that. Police departments have their own specialized forces. It's it's metastasized so much uh, that it's now this institutionalized form of uh, of this institutionalized lie that's just spread throughout society. And it's used to justify, you know, like, you know, the, the murder of Palestinians in cold blood because they're Muslim. You know, they're Muslim. And you know what Muslim means. That's, you know, the, the connotation there. And so we, what we've seen is this demonization of an entire uh, religious group and... The, the destruction of Islamic countries and any and now you know we see waves of refugees that are now being uh, targeted by you know right wing groups and this whole war on terror has has you know been boiled down to all of these you know Israeli colonels and British SAS soldiers and Turkish uh, mafiosos and you know CIA assets and and FBI plots, it all comes down to this theater, the terrorist theater that is being used to strip all of uh, the West freedoms from them without, you know, through the use of the shock doctrine. It's just, it's, it's astonishing. It really is astonishing to believe that they've been able to get away with this for so many years. And I just, I hope that Russia continues to unravel it. And I hope Turkey's not the first country to go under the bus on their well, like getting back to this uh, the story about this colonel um, for a moment, uh, it's interesting because uh, Netanyahu had a visit to the White House and Obama 
very recently where he asked Obama whether or not um, the U.S. would sanction um, <clears throat> Israel's further annexation of the Golan Heights, uh, which is uh, in the northern part of Israel and which was originally uh, taken, at least part of it was taken uh, from Syrian territory uh, during the war in 1967. And, uh, of course, this has been a uh, an area from which um, Israel has conducted um, forward activities in supporting ISIS. There, there have been pictures showing um, Netanyahu visiting so-called, you know, moderates who are opposing Assad in hospitals who are injured. Um, and, and, of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, but a big interest here is uh, an oil patch that they just located, that an Israeli uh, company um, had just located in the area of the Golan Heights. And apparently it is huge, huge. Uh, 350 meters thick is what they say. And on average, it says that they're 20 to 30 meters thick. So this, this thing is huge. And G Energy is already involved, which is Dick Cheney and Woolsey and Rothschilds. And so money, money, money. Yeah. So uh, so James Woolsey is, is one of the people with financial interests. And, of course, you know, what was his job 20 years ago? He was head of the CIA. Of course he was. And he, he also makes the, the rounds of going to colleges in the U.S. and trumping up the war on terror. That's something he's been doing in the past 10 years. So um, it's so interesting how all of these guys who are demonizing, uh, you know, these various uh, independent um, uh, leaders – and, and governments in the Middle East, they all, you know, they all have a serious vested financial interest in gaining control over land. Uh, no, it's not and resources and resources. Yeah, water in Libya, oil in the Middle East. Uh, on one level, it's just pure imperial mafioso. Uh, bullying and and stealing of resources, you know, from uh, from people that they find very easy to demonize and destroy. Yeah, and we talked earlier about you know how could you know the CIA and NATO and you know, and all these other groups be involved, and it's you know through relationships. It's through the relationships that these guys. Uh, uh, develop over the course of their careers, and you know you you are on the board of Halliburton, and you're the vice president, and then you you know you're on the board of a of a BP, or you just you keep on making these circles, develop these relationships, you get all these kickbacks on war and what amounts to genocide, and these people they won't stop because that's all that they they want is more more money for themselves, more war, and it's. I mean, it's ridiculous that it just boils down to this greed. But you know, these guys—it's—it's—it's it's, um, it's basically how they operate. It's their psychology. This bottomless pit. Well, like another one of these um, stories that's come out recently, 
that that seems to suggest a, a greater awareness among at, at least some um, is from a senator of I believe it's Virginia, uh, Senator Black, um, who came out and said, you know, terrorists will be destroyed once the U.S. stops supporting them. A U.S. senator. Um, this is a decorated Vietnam veteran. I think he got a, a golden, not a golden, but a purple heart. Um, but the guy definitely has the right idea. And uh, and many kudos goes out to him. Absolutely. Um, That's another... Are we entering another reality here? <laughs> yeah. Moment. So actually, the article was, uh, War in Syria would end if U.S. stopped supporting terrorists. And uh, he makes these statements. He says, people need to understand that if the United States, France, and Britain stopped supporting terrorists, the war would end. We caused the war, and we can end it whenever we wish. Tens of thousands of Toyota trucks are being delivered to ports in Turkey, fitted with 23-millimeter cannons from Croatia, and delivered to ISIS, Islamic State, and Al-Qaeda-linked factions fighting in Syria, Black said. The United States remains deeply involved in training terrorists and arming them to battle the legitimate Syrian forces. Thank you. Uh, he also goes on to say, the United States authorized Saudi Arabia to release 500 tow anti-tank missiles to slow the Syrian advance. The United States may also be sending MANPAD anti-aircraft missiles to the terrorists. Transfers of anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles generate blood for money in lucrative arms deals. Saudi Arabia and Turkey were anxious to purge President Assad's secular government and install a severe Islamic dictatorship. Along with Qatar, they funded an array of terrorists to subjugate the Syrian people. If the Turks and Saudis succeed, they will install a brutal Islamic regime dominated by ISIS or Al-Qaeda, Black said. And he also goes on to say, Saudis who fund the bulk of international terrorism have refused to accept a single refugee not surprising. Instead, they offer to build 200 mosques to convert Europe to an Islamic region. This, of course, is the true objective of the immigrant wave. Well, that's where he kind of uh, is probably a little off. Right. The water takes on the color of the cup. This guy is still obviously functioning under some Islamophobia, some severe... He's listening to too much Alex Jones or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he gets the important parts right. Right. Um, but that's, I guess, where we have to pay attention to what even guys like Black are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, you know, how much do Saudi Arabians really care about spreading, you know, their brand of Wahhabism and, and you know. And didn't they celebrate Thanksgiving with some beheadings? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know. How attractive is that? Really? Yes. It's I don't just, know many families who <laughs> want to celebrate their Thanksgiving that way. Their, their brand of religion is basically a cover or employ to uh, further their agenda wherever wherever they need it. Uh, so they radicalize a bunch of people, send them out, pay them, and uh, and right now their objective is Syria. I don't I don't think they really want to. You know. Well, on a positive note, well maybe not a positive note, but Qatar and Saudi Arabia both got a year's worth of rain in a day. 
So there was severe flooding in those two countries. Mm. Well, <laughs> not that that's positive because a lot of innocent people lost their homes and have no homes now. Right. Um, but you have to wonder if there's not connections there somehow. Mm-hmm. A little rain on their parade. Absolutely. Yeah. And historically, the leaders probably would have been blamed for that. You know, going back, way back, the, the people would have said, "What are we doing wrong?" That the universes or the gods are punishing us, and they're angry. That, yeah, you know, the gods are angry at us right now, um, and it's very obvious. I think that what uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar are doing wrong, the the leadership at least. Well, so Black says a couple of other things, and it's like you were saying a moment ago, Corey. You know, he he he's kind of taken on some points of view. I think without even realizing that he that he has. Um, so another one of his statements is three quarters of these immigrants are military aged men, not the families you would expect of legitimate refugees. I don't know if we, that could be verified or not. I don't, you know. Um, of course, uh, you know, when when people send their families out. When people are moving, when immigrants move, uh, it's it is expected on the one hand that the men who are most able to work and uh, are the are like the forward um, acting group. You know, they they try and create a place where their family can be stable. Um, and of course, there's also the idea that among uh, many of these refugees, there will be some who have been hired, uh, who, whose new uh, operations, uh, their, new, uh, their new kind of base of operations is wherever they're being sent. You know, uh, yeah, you were working in Syria for the past six months, but, but now we're reassigning you to Germany where you'll uh, escape the camp that you've been set up in and, and, and kill some, uh, some people in a church one day or something to that effect. I, I don't see that as out of the realm of of possibility. Um, but all of that ultimately is uh, more of this kind of diabolical plan to uh, divide people and exacerbate the already horrible, you know, Islamophobia that exists in Europe. Yeah, I think. I think. The terrorist propaganda, that's another sign of how deeply embedded it is in the population because whereas, like you said, there could be some men who are terrorists or jihadis and going to Europe um, or trying to get into the U.S., I mean, at the same time, just because you're a military-aged man does not mean that you are a jihadi. You know, these, these are people trying to escape the jihadis that have been sent in there and to destroy and destabilize the country. And, I mean, who, in their right mind, really, I think that, you know, when it comes down to it, it's the propaganda is clouded people's thinking, so they can't see that if I were in that situation and the streets were being overrun by these insane, bloodthirsty fanatics, the last thing that I would do is hunker down with my family and hope for the best. These people, well, most of them are probably pretty intelligent, and they're brave, I mean, I think it's pretty brave to try and escape this kind of a situation. Obviously, how many people have died on their way? Drowned. 
or I mean, just how dangerous in this situation is not an accident, but this uh, it's unfortunate that the senator has either you know fallen for this line of thinking, or you know it's just part of his you know kind of you know psychological profile that he is going to lump all these people in as as terrorists and basically accept this racist ideology that's been foisted upon us through the war on terror. Well, he's removing the people who cause the problem from the equation. Right. You can talk about how bad the terrorists are and how many refugees they create, and the terrorism's bad, but he's not taking responsibility for what we've done there right. to cause those problems. Well, I, he's I, not connecting those dots. No. Yeah, I, you know what it is? I, I think he tries to. I just don't think he... Uh, so this is a very deeply diabolical situation. I mean, it's like it's like four steps removed from what what the average person reading, you know, watching CNN and and you know reading uh, the New York Times uh, would come to understand. I mean, it's so deeply. There's so many levels to this um, that. Uh, you know, we're we're kind of lucky in a way reading reading the news and having such a deep analysis of it as we do. Even and and we may not be correct in all of our yeah. uh, assessments of it. But I mean, I, you know, well, anyone reading it, I think if they didn't have that idea before, mm-hmm. it's popped a bubble maybe in their mind that would lead to the unlayering of the lies in their own mind. We could, they can start with the fact that we're funding and supporting terror in other countries and creating this refugee crisis, you know, that's one bubble that's been popped by him saying that. I mean, how many constituents does he have? How many people watch, you know, follow him on the Internet? You know, his Twitter, his Facebook. I mean, there's people out there that have heard what he said that might have popped a bubble in their mind Mm -hmm. about American exceptionalism. Well, speaking of popping bubbles, uh, (laughs) you... Um, you had a piece about uh, the protests in Italy regarding NATO. Um, it wasn't Italy. It was actually in Greece. In Greece. And in Bulgaria. And um, the one in Greece, um, according to Sputnik, there was a, a few hundred or a hundred or so. Um, they were gathered in Square Syntagma. And they burned a NATO and a U.S. flag. Um, they were protesting... Turkey's shooting of this plane. Um, let's see. Let's see. Um, what they tried to do, um, it looks like there was a whole bunch of them, but they wanted to kind of deliver a letter to Mr. Erdogan, and they couldn't because of the police cordons, but they were very strongly against um, what Erdogan had done. It said here, um, the whole world is disturbed by the possible consequences of a Russian plane downing by your country. Contrary to your claims, the aircraft didn't violate Turkish airspace and acted within Syrian territory in a mission against the Islamic State terrorist group. We don't know who was responsible for the order to destroy the aircraft. We want to believe this madman wasn't you. And it was actually, I believe, the embassy there that they were trying to deliver this address to. Mm-hmm. Um, but they very strongly reacted against this thing. Um, and it's nice to, to see. It's nice to read um, it's disappointing the amount of people, but um, they got belligerent and nobody was hurt. Um, but they were trying to to just deliver that message to him. Um, the second one was in Bulgaria, and no flag burning. Um, 
but had the same attitude. They thought that uh, that turkeys there was no reason for Turkey to shoot this plane out of the sky, and it was unacceptable an act of war. And they just thought it was unacceptable. Um, then they showed support for Russia, what Russia's doing in Syria to help free us from this terrorist act, mm-hmm. uh, or terrorism, I should say. Well, yeah, that, that's kind of heartening. And uh, and we've also noticed on social media a kind of um, a greater amount of awareness. Uh, people responding to the programmed uh, American um, response to all of these events. Um, there, there seems to be a lot more <clears throat> objective, informed uh, voices. Um, you know, I was I was reading about uh, Erdogan's denials this week because he's come under some heavy, heavy uh, pressure. Uh, you know, the the mask has been pulled off of this monster's face, and and now he's vehemently, you know, uh, against uh, speaking out about the media's demonization of him. And hopes that the U.S. will uh, will will see through it and take his side. I'm paraphrasing here. Um, and I, I read a few of the comments from people, and it was an article that came out from like um, uh, Agency Francaise or or uh, AP or you know, one of these big kind of media outlets. And there was a fair number of, of responses um, to this kind of affirming. You know, this guy isn't back guilty of everything he's being accused of and worse. And uh and so I was I was happy about that. Um because I feel like you know if if this if this thing hadn't happened necessarily, uh all of this wouldn't have been brought to the fore. Yeah. Um I've noticed the same thing, um, like on Facebook and Twitter. There seems to be a better awareness of it, um, like Erdogan and even Putin, mm-hmm. uh, more support for Putin, seeing through the lies that our government's telling us about terrorists and terrorism. Um, I've noticed that as well. It's heartening to see. And I think that uh, that whole narrative is really gaining ground uh, that NATO is responsible for terrorism. You know, that's that that's that core truth. In there, that is, it seems to be gaining a lot of ground, uh, especially on social media and you know, via Twitter and Facebook. Whereas, you know, it's like you said, it's like four steps removed from the average person who watches CNN and whatnot. At the same time, there, um, it's opening a space for people to take in that that awareness and that information that is really critical for understanding the world and understanding how we've been duped and kind of led into this back alley by a bunch of thugs that are circling us with a bunch of who are brandishing their knives and you know it's we don't really have a, a lot of options right now because you know i mean we're it's essentially it feels like the world has been placed under siege by this kind of this war on terrorism propaganda all of um you know this heightened security and you know all of the after effects um you know police shootings heightened you know violence and at the same time, it's good to see that through Russia's intervention and how that's led to these different reactions from NATO, mm-hmm. that it is starting to break NATO's hold on 
the public mind in, in, in you know, maybe small ways, maybe bigger ways. It's probably impossible to, to measure that, though I'm sure the NSA is doing their best. <laughs> well, <clears throat> so here's the thing. We have these two really um, wonderful forces involved. Uh, we have the Western, um, Western-backed, supported, conceived uh, terrorism, which includes Israel and, and some of the countries in the Middle East, and then we have, you know, Russia, Iran, uh, Syria, Iraq, probably China, now Brazil, Brazil, extent, yeah. but possibly um, France, uh, and. Um, and they're all trying to deconstruct through their actions also this this fake narrative. But every time there's some success, like everyone is pretty clear on the fact that uh, Russia's actions in Syria over the past month, month and a half are a resounding success. Uh, so what happens? We get the, the Paris bombings. Uh, we get we just got the downing of the Russian SU twenty four. And the passenger plane. And the passenger plane. Yeah. And and a lot of other events. Mm-hmm. A lot of terrorist attacks. A lot of them. Rampant shootings. Well and that one um in Colorado Springs at Planned Parenthood. I mean just a lot of crazy stuff going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so you know, it it's kind of like there are these two forces. You know, one is trying to wake people up to the situation, and there's this other force that that's trying to, through, you know, the Planned Parenthood attack, and uh, but even more kind of, you know, so-called Islamic connected uh, elements of terrorism. Yeah. Uh, foster more division, uh, more fear, uh, more authoritarianism, more fascism, more police state interventions, uh, more harassment. Um, and, you know, it, it's what what do we think we'll see in the next few months? I mean, it, it, things just look to be accelerating. I, I don't know either. Um, Juliana wrote a really nice article about Islamophobia. Um, and I read an article yesterday. There was a was in Austin at University of Texas, and a Muslim student was leaving the university walking to the mosque. He had headphones on, and somebody attacked him because they thought he was getting instructions from the Islamic State. They knocked him to the ground because well, he had headphones on, and well, he was a Muslim. Well, that's a pretty rational behavior. I mean, Well, I mean, what is that? All Muslim terrorists wear headphones and, and take their I, instructions I just, that way, no? The fear and the... It's a, it's a, yeah. I mean... I just cannot wrap my head around that. It's a young kid with headphones on with book bag heading towards the mosque, you know? And there was already talk that the, um, I forget, I think it's the imam of the mosque. Mm-hmm. We need more police protection, you know? So they're already ramping up the, we're going to need to have a police or a security officer here at the mosque now because, and there's happening all over the world where they're bombing mosques or throwing stones at mosques or Attacking Muslims and it's just ramping up, ramping up, ramping up. I mean, uh, I just it just floors me that somebody would, you know, football tackle somebody with headphones on because they're Muslim and they might be talking to the Islamic State. I mean, just 
Do the headphones? <laughs> the microphone? I mean, just it's ridiculous. Just <laughs> there was a story a few weeks ago of a of a woman dressed. Um, uh, she was Islamic. I think she lived in like Kentucky or, or one of these states. Uh, lived there for like twenty years. She was sitting in a public place, like a like an Applebee's, or a, thank God it's Fridays, you know, one of these <laughs> restaurants, talking to her friend in in her native tongue, which might have been Somali, um, if that's the name of their language there. <clears throat> anyway, some lady comes up to her and basically bashes her face in uh, because a she was speaking in this other language, and b you know she was wearing, uh, yeah. This kind of clearly, you know, Islamic clothing. So that, and then she ran away and was, I think, later arrested. Um, so yes, the, the level of irrationality, of of aggression, um, of scapegoating, you know, and that's really that's really a part of it. That's what the, the powers that be understand. Yeah. That if you're frustrated with anything in your life. And you have this minority that everyone can kind of uh, point to and, and vilify and demonize. Like they did the Jews. Like they did the Jews in World War II. You know, you, you've given them an outlet that serves your psychopathic agenda. Yeah, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that that's a struggle for our common humanity, uh, that people are are waging right now and that these kinds of things are significant marker events in terms of how low to how low people descending. I mean, it's like you to, to, to knock someone's face in because they're speaking a different language. They look like they could be Muslim mm-hmm. or to attack someone who's a Muslim quote unquote, whatever, if they, I don't know how they could tell that or if they knew they were, they were wearing headphones or two. Like I remember reading on thought that there was a, a store called ISIS that was attacked because it was said ISIS. You know, the name of their store was ISIS. And it's the name of a goddess, an Egyptian goddess, right? I mean, right. you can't. Yeah. It's yeah. Like a New Age bookstore. Yeah, you're just assuming that it's ISIS. <laughs> I mean, it just shows how programmed, robotic, mechanical, just and in a very dark way, people are at. Like those marker events, you know, just like you said, that led up to um, what happened in Nazi Germany. Yeah, and what we see over and over is that the people, the majority of people, do what they think they can get away with, and our leaders are doing the same thing. So these leaders are leading the people on the same path that they're on. Mm. They're going to say the same things, you know, George Bush said and that Obama said and that our leaders say. We've got a few Okay, like this uh, black, Senator Black, Rohrbacher, that Tulsi from Hawaii. We've got some leaders out there who are giving these people more to think about, which is a positive thing. But this this guy who tackled the student on the way to the mosque, I mean, he's literally just doing what our leaders are doing, which is demonizing a Muslim. And, you know, it's not communicated through language because after after 9-11, of course, Bush, Bush or W specifically said, let's not go after these people. Mm-hmm. But of course, everything that the government is doing, uh, it's like a it's like a child 
um, you know, a parent can tell a child not to do something. But if the if the parent is showing by example, that's what the child learns from. And to the authoritarian children of, yeah. of, the, of our government. Role modeling. Right. I think, and it's like, it's like hypnosis, because on one level, they are, it's, they're making it blatantly, you know, the, through these terror attacks and through their response and through, you know, the, all their speaking after the terror attacks, they're telling you, okay, these, this is the end. You know, no matter, even if it's a spoiled FBI plot, no matter if it's abundantly obvious that, you know, the quote-unquote Muslims weren't involved in it whatsoever, they are imprinting that in people's, like, their deep subconscious, unconscious, that... The Muslim population is the enemy. They they imprint that, and they can and then they can say consciously, of course, don't go out and hurt anybody. But the the effect is still there deep down. You're still associating uh, a population with um, with death, with fear, with you know revulsion. And so then you start to see these mechanical reactions. I mean, just how people um, see others as subhuman. You know, they're associating this. You know. Like basically what it amounts to, like hypnosis. Yeah. Well, one of the comments uh, that Chatter has made is, I'm starting to wonder if it's fear that is the reason for these attacks on Muslims or that these type of bullies now have a go-ahead to the racist to beat up Brown. Absolutely. I think it's yeah. both. Yeah. Yeah. And and another Chatter says it's it's probably both. Yeah. So it's like, okay, people, uh, these are your own worst instincts. And and drives, go ahead, because uh, they're a danger to you. you know, yeah. It's like creating the narrative that these people require uh, in order to give themselves permission to act like complete animals. Yeah. Know? Well, I think it goes back, you know, I mean, not everybody is going to follow the leader, but um, there was an article a while back where it was involving police brutality, and the, the sheriff or the deputy had said, Essentially, Obama doesn't follow the Constitution. Why should I? And I think there's variations of that with individuals. I mean, some people aren't. I mean, I'm not going to go tackle some Muslim because he's got headphones on and he's walking down the street. I mean, just I think some people will. But like you said, it just that sort of action gives them permission. And Putin has gone to great lengths to counter that. He's gone on record saying that the religion of you know Islam has nothing to do with you know. These terrorists, they're a separate thing, and other people have too. They're trying to separate that connection people make with the Muslim religion and terrorism. You know, it's just a religion. Well, let's just put the line there. It's a religion, and all these people are evil because they're Muslim. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a leadership aspect to it that is yeah. probably – Exactly. Seventy-five percent of it, maybe. I don't know. I mean, what does Putin do in the, in the midst of all of this? A few weeks ago, he creates this this new mosque. Yeah, uh, a beautiful, a, a beautiful big mosque. You know, he's affirming what's constructive about the religion. It's respectful. It's not just. Uh, I mean, you know, you could be cynical and say it's a political maneuver to or or perception management, but I don't think so. I don't either. I think that if it is political, it's the the right kind of politics. Mm. You know, I, th- I think that we've given politics, the West has given politics a pretty bad name with all these empty words, 
you know, just basically saying, yeah, we just one, you know, say one thing out of one corner of the mouth and to turn around and say the exact opposite. He recognizes what a true leader's role is, and that is to be a role model for his people. Yeah, he presented, when he visited Iran, it was, and he presented an ancient uh, Quran text. That was pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Was that a gift to uh, mm-hmm. the Ayatollah? Yeah, and in the West, you know, politics has been butchered. You know, we don't have politics. We have marketing, and we have the uh, human resources and public relations, and they will say one thing because, you know, they want to sell a product. They want to sell a war. They want to sell one thing or another. Or a candidate. Yeah, and people don't believe it anymore, and you can tell by the horrendous turnouts for elections. People don't believe the politics, but they're still being pumped full of all of this marketing. And, I mean, you know, it's... It, it's people like Putin uh, who are going out and, like you said, uh, William, that he's delivering uh, an ancient Quran. He, they're building the uh, a mosque. You know, they're practicing politics of cohesion and order and uniting rather than this divide and conquer nonsense that that the U.S. and other countries are getting into or have been into for you know centuries. I'm I'm enjoying the comments today from our chatters. I have read some more. Yeah, there's, a, there's another one here. It says, "I want to be Putin when I grow up." Hey, we can all be Putin when when we grow up. I mean, I, I I'm really impressed with his. Um, he, it's like JFK. You know, he recognized what a leader is supposed to do. I mean, all the funny pictures of him, like on horseback and looking muscular, manly, and he's got fan clubs on Facebook, and people just love him. And I think that he is, he caters his image and what he does to the masses of people. I mean, individually, it will, the, he will appeal to each one individually in a certain way. You know what I mean? I mean, well, he just seems to have his all of his eggs in the basket, I guess I don't I know how do, to say I it. I do think that that's really him, though. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think he, you know, there, there have been a lot of, um, uh, there's been a lot of coverage of him doing um, adventurous things, riding comets and dragons. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll be in a few bears. Months. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, I, no, like I, I do think that's really, you know, his, his essence. You know, he, yeah. He, he would rather be doing these things, but he's taken it upon himself to uh, really correct things that he has the, the power correct. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. So, <clears throat> speaking about what might happen in the near future, uh, you know how all this clamoring of to, one way to get rid of ISIS is to attack it through financial means mm-hmm. and, and destroy that. Well, if... Um, too many countries and people rally around Putin. I could just see the U.S. or the elite bankers try and do something economically to hurt them much more in the financial. Hurt Russia? Hurt, hurt Russia. And, of course, that's going to hurt Europe. So they may you know, go after Europe and make it even more weak. So it can't do any kind of trading with Russia. And hopefully they may think it might hurt Russia as well. Right, I think we have to remember that they still have, uh, you know, that's a big red button that hasn't been hit yet, but they have a lot of uh, power in over control of the debt. And, you know, these central banking institutions, you know, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of International Settlements, the IMF, all these country, um, these centralized debt hoarders could 
really tear things up. I think you're right about that, William. Yeah, because you're starting to hear some whispers from the EU countries about, well, you know, let's think about lifting the the sanctions off from Russia. And boy, that's not going to sit well with the U.S., I'm sure. Well, I think that they recognize they might be trading seats on the Titanic when it comes to the U.S. Um, they may be trying to distance themselves some so it doesn't affect them as bad. Well, they're, they're basically, I think, being forced into making this choice. You know, um, they they realize that uh, all of the uh, U.S. policies, the the sanctions, the uh, the the kind of media destruction of Russia, um, all of these stories, they don't really serve very much uh, for for people who just want to kind of have make a profit and, and do so without killing a bunch of people. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think it was one of the leaders of the EU who said that uh, a few weeks ago. It's like, I think it's time to to lift the sanctions and, and start having some business back with Russia again. Um, so uh, I think we're going to see quite a bit more of that. I think for countries like Ukraine that are already... Uh, Kind of horribly under the thumb of of the U.S. and and we've we've heard of a recent story where the U.S. has begun to uh, to further train and arm along with Canada uh, soldiers in Kiev, um, which is contravening the uh, Minsk agreements. Um, yeah, so. So we're going to see a continued splitting, and, and uh, these countries and these leaders and these governments are going to have to make some serious choices and either stand up to the U.S. Uh, or uh, further suffer as a result of their connections to the U.S. Yeah, and that Crimea blackout, too. That's pretty interesting how that turns out. And so now Russia is scrambling to provide electricity to Crimea directly and not have to rely on Ukraine. And then you have all these coal shipments that are being halted and not being provided to Ukraine and uh and the gas they haven't prepaid their gas and <clears throat> Yatsenyuk is saying oh we've only got one or two months reserves oh, we got to be careful and uh, it might be a cold winter coming up too so basically what happened there the uh Crimea's um energy supplies were sabotaged right, right. they had four power transmission uh, towers that were uh, blown up. Hmm. Do you think the Nazis did it? <laughs> and what was the timing of this? Was this at the, the same day as the SU-24 was, uh, was brought down? I think it was just a little bit before, but I'm not okay. positive. Okay. Well, I think that at this point, like you were talking about EU countries making these decisions... You know, I'm no physicist, but I just I it reminds me of uh, you know what you hear about the event horizon on a black hole. Like once you pass a certain point, it's too late to get out. And I mean, it's you know, have we passed that point and it's and it's looking like, oh, so this is what the US is really all about. We're seeing these this refugee crisis getting amped up. We're seeing attacks on the streets. We're seeing attacks on uh, migrant camps. We're seeing, you know, Turkey fall apart. We're, you know, and you know, we have. What can we do? 
just desperately trying to get out. So, you know, like a Holland is the one that comes to mind, just trying to uh, to find a way to navigate this uh, this labyrinth. Navigating the labyrinth <laughs> through information, through sharing information, through thinking on all these different things that we've been reading about, all these different events. Um, you know, like we've said before here on the show, it would be darned entertaining if it wasn't all so horrible. Yeah, this would be horrifying. I do want to. T- do we still have time? We do. I want to touch on something that um, uh, I, there was a. Um, a 17-year-old kid shot by Chicago police. His name is Laquan McDonald. And apparently um, he was shot and killed, and the family sued and won their case as civilly. Um, and I'm not sure of the details of the story, but a reporter took uh, the Chicago PD to court to get access to this videotape of the shooting. And um, the judge agreed to release it. And because the videotape was coming out, Chicago District Attorney decided to file charges against this white officer who shot this black kid 13 months later, okay, just to kind of damp down. The, they, they explicitly stated they're doing it to prevent people from getting so angry. And sure enough, it didn't work very well. Um, they did have protests the day that this video was released and all over Chicago. And on Black Friday, which I, this is great news to me. Um, well, can I just interrupt you? Sure. So the idea, as I understand it, is that um, because they knew that the video, and this is the the police force and the mayor's office, district attorney, district attorney, because they knew that the the video would show clearly that this kid did not have to be shot and killed. Sixteen times was, he was shot. It was only it was only because they knew this video was going to be released that they filed murder charges that they filed murder charges against the cop this crazy cop correct who killed this boy correct so it was a way to appeal to the masses and make them feel better not because it was wrong to shoot a drugged up 17 year old with a 3 inch knife in his hand i mean this, if you watch the video it's pretty clear that he was walking away he was no threat yeah, i mean he, was, he just was no threat but they had protests and on black friday in chicago um they shut down uh, a shopping district. This is a level of protest. Okay, I mean, I don't know how it affect retail sales, but um, to me, it spoke to the power of two thousand people um, protesting the Magnificent Mile on Black Friday. It's a shopping area, um, but to me, it shows the power of people. It's like um, two thousand people can do a lot, even if it's just shut down a shopping mall for a period of time on Black Friday. Uh, this kid, I mean, 16 shots. Uh, even one shot. Yeah, I mean, it just... Video, as Corey said, the, the kid is walking not even in the direction of the police officers. He was posing no threat to anyone. Right. Uh, he could have been, you know, he could have been tackled. Well, uh, tons by one or two. Uh, Thirteen guys. months later, you don't, you're not filing charges against this cop because he was wrong. Mm-hmm. You're filing charges against this cop because he got caught, basically. Right. I think it was that he basically got out of the cop car and then just unloaded on this kid who was walking away. And Fifteen feet away, yeah, the kid was. The kid's walking away. He gets out of his car and just unloads on him. And then he has 
more than a year mm-hmm. to remain in position. And the only reason he might lose his job is because of the backlash. And that's in, isn't that because of the people power that's been executed before this? Because how many times has this happened? Oh, thousands. I mean, and how many? I mean, and they uh, they know that people are getting sick and tired of seeing all these innocent young men, innocent people harassed, beaten, killed by police who just go right back to their job while the police department says, "But you don't understand what it's like to be a police officer. You know, you don't understand what it's like to see." a young man as a police officer and it's a war that's what they say we're in the trenches we're protecting you from violence we're doing all this stuff for you and maybe some of that is true i mean there's probably some good cops out there doing good things for people um but to me the message was all wrong it wasn't because the cop was wrong and he was it was because the people we don't want the people to get too mad so we were going to file murder charges against him and i'll probably walk given history of such prosecutions, but I thought this protest was great. Over 2,000 people down a shopping mall on Black Friday. Mm-hmm. Two thumbs up. Yeah, what a statement. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's unexpected that statement for us. Those are power and a tacitly permission for others to behave in these violent ways. It's like a, like a an infection. A violent infection uh, because you know you rarely ever heard of, of these types of stories uh, before 9/11. All of this has been ramped up incredibly in the U.S. over the past 10 years. Um, is that a coincidence? I don't think it is. Uh, there, there's something else going on here. Um, so very. Very sad case, but uh, and just the other thing about that story, um, Rahm Emanuel, who was part of the Clinton administration, um, and and has now become the mayor of Chicago uh, or somewhere in that area, said, you know, they didn't release the video up until then because they didn't want to taint the investigation. Or some some such nonsense. This is the same guy who said, uh, "Never miss a chance, an opportunity to take care of a, you know, to take advantage of a crisis." Uh, did I mangle that? Never let a crisis go to waste. I there you go. Never let it go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and of course, you know, I don't know how I don't know how we literally twist this around in favor of the, the powers that be. Because it's so blatant, it's like a double injury. And that's not why they released the video. They released the video because a reporter took it to court. I mean, that's not—he's lying. (laughs) Sorry, maybe he's not. So uh, we had a couple of items and the earth changes. um, Yeah, yeah. Since, since, uh, you know. Things don't seem to be stopping in that area, either, which is interesting. And now for your weather report. Um, interestingly, in Chicago, there was a 120-year snow record broken, which is where the shooting took place, the, the quantum month. What, what was that? 120-year snowfall record was broken in Chicago. So a lot of snow in Chicago. Um, South Dakota also had record-breaking snow. Um, there were 
extraordinary flooding in Maldives, Albania, Qatar, Saudi Arabia. Um, there was 12 uh, small earthquakes at the New Madrid Fault um, in Surrey. And they're like one, three magnitude earthquakes, very small. Um, Glacier Peak had four earthquakes in about three hours, three and a half hours. And Glacier Peak is the site of a very old dormant volcano. It hasn't erupted in like 1,100 years. There was flooding in Kenya. Um, 14,000 people were displaced. There's a lot of activity, earthquakes, volcanoes, sputtering to life. Um, there's a lot of activity. So, so Mother Earth is pissed off. Just like the people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is their, this is their protest against NATO. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, there's earthquakes in, uh, on the Peru-Brazil border. There was one huge one, um, and then four more and one day, like a few days later. So things are opening up. Well, I think that's going to bring the show to a close. And uh, I want to thank our chatters for chatting and, and giving input this week, and uh, as they usually do. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for calling in. Um, and don't forget, tomorrow, Behind the Headlines, uh, they have a very interesting guest uh, who's going to speak on uh, many of the same things that, that were discussed today. Um, I forget his name. He's, in, he's Welsh or Irish. Or, uh, but in any case, it promises to be an interesting show. And uh, and don't miss the Health and Wellness Show next Friday at 10 a.m. And until then, everybody, be well, be safe, be wise. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, guys.